morning we are beginning a new study, and the study is in the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians, or the letter, the epistle of Galatians, and, uh, and I am extremely excited to begin this, this study. Uh, I'm excited every time, but um, I'm especially excited for, for this book. Uh, I think it is a timely message for us today, uh, because many of the things, all of the things really that that this letter addresses are still very much relevant and important for us today. And so uh, before we read the text this morning, uh, I want, would like to, uh, to read my introduction. And uh, we're not going to go very far at all this morning. We're going to uh, just do an introduction primarily to the book of Galatians. And, and the reason for that is, I, I, number one, I believe that, that you all have a genuine desire to be students of the Bible and, and to truly uh, know uh, on a deeper level, uh, not just from a surface uh, perspective, but that we would truly, truly understand God's word as best as we possibly can. And so I would like to do it for that reason, but also uh, to, to just understand that, uh, that the books that we have of the Bible, there's always a context in which these things were written. And the better we understand the context of those things, the better we can rightly apply them to our lives uh, in this day in which we live. So by way of introduction, astonishment, pronouncing a curse, genuine righteous anger, and sharp conflict are all elements of the letter of the Apostle Paul to the churches of Galatia. Such dramatic contents serve to show how important that the one true unadulterated and undiluted gospel of Jesus Christ was to the Apostle Paul and furthermore still is in this present day. The gospel is worth living for. The gospel is worth fighting for. The gospel is worth dying for. And all counterfeits must not only be exposed, but they must be destroyed. Why? Why? Why is this fight? Why is this battle so important? Well, primarily for the glory of God, but also for the salvation of lost sinners and for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and also the preservation and proclamation of the truth. Why would we as a body of Christ, Jack's Mountain Community Church, study the book of Galatians? Well, number one, because of the current state of the church, both globally and locally. The issue, primarily, the primary issue that is addressed by this book is still very much an issue of our day. Uh, the battle for justification by faith alone did not begin and end in 1517. Uh, it, it rages on even to this very moment. Uh, I just was in a country where they tell me 98% of its population, religious population, is Roman Catholic. You say, well, why is that a problem? Well, it's because Roman Catholicism is a works-based, false gospel, dead religion, and it sends people to hell. It's that simple. But not only globally, but locally, we live in an area where there is a works righteousness gospel that is proclaimed week in and week out. As Brother Lance would say, you hear uh, do better, be better messages 
all the time. And that's not the Gospel. It's not the Gospel at all. Another reason why we would study the book of Galatians is is for the trajectory and the foundation of our body Uh, in terms of our constituting as a body of Christ, as Jacks Mountain Community Church, we are still a relatively young church. Many of you have been Christians longer than I am alive, but nonetheless, we need to have a firm foundation and also a clear direction for the life of this church. We also need to study Galatians to, to challenge our presuppositions. That is to say, every single one of you, when you go to study and read the Word of God, even the book of Galatians, you've already have preconceptions, presuppositions in your mind, things that you bring to the Bible that aren't necessarily there, but you force them onto it because of the way that you're already thinking about it before you even read it. And those presuppositions need to be challenged. In other words, Sometimes we have wrong thoughts and we have wrong understandings about what the Bible actually says. And so we need to allow the Word of God to speak and we need to be willing to submit ourselves to what it says. Amen. Not only that, number four, why would we study Galatians? Well, it's going to strengthen our faith in the finished work of Christ. Always and forever a need in our hearts to strengthen our faith. Another reason to study Galatians is I believe it empowers our evangelism when we think about the nature of the gospel itself, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, that God saves sinners. Also, number six, to engage in the battle of false gospels. In other words, as we study the book of Galatians and we are encountering people that proclaim false gospels, that God would give us the courage and the ambition to, uh, to point those errors out and in, and, and in love for the truth and in love in truth, expose those errors and replace it with sound teaching. And then ultimately, again, a reason for us to study the book of Galatians is to bring glory to God for the sake of Christ Jesus, our Lord. So uh, that's not the introduction Totally, but it is part of our introduction. Let's read the text at this time. We're only going to look this morning at the first two verses, but for the sake of context and to to point out to us this morning the the nature of this letter, we're going to read the first 10 verses. So if you found Galatians chapter number one, would you stand with me in honor of reading God's word this morning? Galatians chapter number one, beginning to read in verse one, the word of God says, Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen. Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Lord, bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, pray now, Lord, in the moments that we study your word, we ask God that you would speak to us and and grant to us wisdom and understanding in your scriptures today, Father. We pray that you would lead us into paths of righteousness for your name's sake, and that by your spirit, you would lead us into all truth. And so, Father, we pray for your help and your strength and your blessing upon your word. And God, that you would receive all the glory, the honor, and the praise for it. As your servant, Lord, I pray that you would cleanse me of sin and empty me of self and fill me, God, that I may be a blessing to these, your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So our goal this morning is just simply to ask a few questions concerning the book of Galatians, and then also just to uh, end with a a general outline of the flow of the letter to see what we're going to be studying for the next weeks and likely months ahead of us. Six chapters, and they are absolutely loaded. So the first question we want to ask is who? Who was the author and who was this book written to? Well, the first verse answers that question for us, and the second, the latter. The first verse says, Paul, an apostle. That is, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he identifies himself with the very first word. Uh, We write letters a little bit different than they did in this day, and that is to say we we give all kinds of greetings, and we have the body of our letter, and we end with some sort of a salutation, and and we say, oh, and by the way, this is from so-and-so. And it's kind of strange if you think about it, unless a person runs to the very end, they have no idea who they're even speaking to. Uh, And so Paul, he identifies himself right up front and center, and we know that the authorship is the Apostle Paul. But we also see that Paul was writing this. He's he's taking the primary responsibility for the contents of this letter, but he's also adding to that that there were other people there. That is, verse 2, all the brothers who are with me, now, they were not holding the pen with Paul and helping him write these things, but, but they were certainly affirming and agreeing and being witnesses to all that was being said. Uh, and, and a little bit more about them in a minute. But Paul identifies himself as an apostle. And as an apostle, he makes it clear that this apostleship was not from men, nor was it through man, but instead his apostleship was through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And, and just in case we were confused about who that is, he says, who raised him, Christ, from the dead? In other words, the one who has made me an apostle is the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and that is the um, uh, omnipotent uh, and, and all-powerful, all-knowing God of the, of the universe who resurrected Christ from the dead. And so there's an authority that comes with the statement, not only of Paul's apostleship, but his calling to the apostleship. Now, why why do we make a big deal about that in this day and hour? 
Uh, and uh, it's probably abundantly clear to most of us that the reason we need to point these things out is because today we have people who are calling themselves, they are self-appointed apostles, and, and they're running around and making a, a mess of things and leading silly people uh, uh, astray, and, and they are heaping up for themselves in an, uh, an immense amount of God's wrath against themselves and also the people that they are deceiving. Just in case you were wondering, what does it, what requires, uh, uh, someone to be a, an apostle? Uh, there's at least three things. There's more, but three things specifically that an apostle must have had or experienced in order to be a genuine apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first is that they had to be discipled by Jesus himself. Okay, so that's a that's a pretty big deal. You have to be discipled by Jesus himself. Now, a careful student of the Bible would say, well, but Paul didn't become a Christian until Acts chapter number nine. How in the world did he get? How in the world was he discipled by Christ when Christ had had died and was buried and resurrected and 40 days later ascended in heaven? How did Christ? uh, How was he discipled? By Christ Himself. Well, Paul actually answers that question if you look down at verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, But when He who had set me apart before I was born, whoa, let's read that again. Paul says, But when He, Christ, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me, in order that I might preach among the, him among the Gentiles, I did not cons- immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. You say, what on earth happened there in Arabia in that time that Paul was called to be an apostle? Well, he spent those three years with Christ being taught in Arabia and then sent back to begin his apostleship specifically to the Gentiles. And so Jesus discipled Christ or discipled Paul in a very unique and particular way, which gives him the first stamp of approval for an apostle. The second one is that they had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. A eyewitness, an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Now we know from the account given in, in 1 Corinthians that, uh, that all of the apostles and also an, uh, a number of about 500 people had all seen the resurrected Christ at once. But again, Paul was not yet a Christian at that time. And his encounter with the resurrected Christ came on the road to Damascus in a very profound and dramatic way when, when God arrested the apostle Paul's heart and commissioned him to to go from persecuting Christians, killing them, and then employing him into the gospel ministry. And the same, those people who are discipled by Christ and an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ also had to be called and appointed by Christ to be an apostle. Now, if you can find someone today that fits those descriptions, uh, then we could talk about their apostleship. But it's pretty clear that no one today fits those descriptions. And so the apostleship has ended with the apostles themselves. And there's an aspect in which we can talk about being an apostle, uh, but it's not in the same way. It's, it's in a very, very different context in which one could be considered apostolic in their ministry. 
but to say to say for certain that the apostles, that is the definite article, large A apostle that we're referring to here today, that office has been fulfilled and is therefore closed. But Peter, or yeah, Paul was indeed an apostle, and his calling was not from men nor through man. In other words, it was not a uh, uh, it was not a church council. It was not some other priest or uh, not some other uh, apostle themselves, but it was Jesus Christ himself and God the Father who made this determination, as Paul says, before he was even born. He was appointed, predestined, to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so his appointment was to the ministry of the gospel as an apostle. And again, we also seen the authorship is confirmed by all the brothers who are with me. Now, Paul is in other places, in other epistles we study, Paul goes into great detail to tell us about who was with him and who, who he's doing this or that with and, and whatever. But for some reason, uh, the names that Paul is, is purposefully withholding here are, they're unidentified people, and, and we don't know exactly why, but we could, we could speculate or we could, uh, we could assume some things or ask some questions, uh, some possibilities of why Paul does not identify those brothers who are with me, uh, as the text says. Uh, it, it could be possibly to cover the error of someone, because as we're going to see in a minute, uh, there were those who, who Peter, or, I'm sorry, I keep saying Peter, there were those who Paul had to rebuke in a very firm way because of their positions that were wrong. And so maybe he is covering them. That is to say, he doesn't want them to be seen as uh, as somebody who was contradictory or whatever, uh, possibly because Paul seems to be rapidly getting to the reason of the letter. Uh, other letters that we read, the Apostle Paul wrote, he goes on uh, a long and, and flowery greetings sometimes and giving commendations and encouragements to the things that are going on in the churches. And, and he's just, he's just uh, you know, loading their wagons with all kinds of kindness. But he doesn't do that here. And it's obvious that Paul has a, a very uh, specific agenda and he wastes no time. Uh, maybe it's because there were too many people to, to list and he just didn't want to take the space to name everyone. But either way, this letter comes with not only an apostolic authority of the Apostle Paul, but it also comes with an authenticity of multiple witnesses. And that should give us confidence in the word itself, right? It's one thing if I say something, but it's a completely different thing if you have agreement among seven or eight other people who confirm the exact same thing as you, amen? Uh, there, there's a there's a strength in agreement, and so so Paul has not only again his apostolic authority, but he also has the support of the witnesses. So, who the next question of who is who is the audience? Who is the audience? Well, it says in verse two, the latter part, to the churches plural of Galatia, to the churches of Galatia. Now, there there is some debate over which churches these were in particular. And I found it interesting as I was studying this that, that there is even a debate over it because it seems to me to be abundantly clear based upon the text that we look at in verses or chapter 13 through 15 of the book of Acts that it couldn't possibly be any other places. Uh, and so there are some 
church towns in the northern part of Galatia, uh, as well as in the southern part. And some people take the, the northern part to be the, the place where Paul is circulating this letter. And those who do that will also date this letter in a later period of time. And that is why, hence, you see in your, your outline there, if you're following along, that the, the writing of this book could have been from 48 to 52 A.D., and I gave you that just to be fair and honest, that there is disagreement among uh, scholars into who specifically Paul was writing to. However, however, as I'm about to show you, I would date the book specifically at either 48 or 49 A.D. specifically. And the reason being that I believe the churches of Galatia that he's talking to specifically or that this letter was circulated among was in southern Galatia, which included Pisidian Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, and Derby. And so in order to figure out when, we're going to look at the context of what is taking place when this letter was written. And so turn with me to Acts chapter number 13. Acts chapter 13. So Paul has begun his, his missionary journeys, and, uh, and one of the first places that he goes after being uh, Paul's pattern for uh, for missions was to go into the Jewish synagogues and, and he would preach Christ there. And almost exclusively, Paul was kicked out of the synagogues and he would then go and turn his attention and time to the, to the Gentiles. So in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were, uh, were sent off and they're going into the church at, at Antioch and, uh, and they, they meet opposition everywhere they go. Uh, Barnabas and Paul are in Cyprus. And again, the same, they, they experience all kinds of difficulties. But uh, there in verse 13 of chapter 13, uh, we see Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for people, say it. In other words, hey, if you got a sermon to preach, here's your opportunity. Wow. Talk about an open door, right? So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, said, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. He goes on to preach, and again, the message of the gospel, it divides. There were those who heard it and those who received it. There were those who rejected it. Paul and, uh, and, and uh, Silas or Barnabas there, they're, they're chased away. And they just keep going from one place to another. In other words, their, their failures don't, don't mean finality. Their failures mean more opportunities. And they go to the next place. Chapter 14, they're in Iconium. Again, they go into the Jewish synagogue. Uh, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brothers. All kinds of conflict. Again, there was an attempt made by both of them in this place to, uh, to, to take their lives they flee in verse 6 to Lystra Derby and the cities of Lyconia and the surrounding country. And there, there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, a second rotation happens. That's first round. Second rotation in the, in the latter parts of, of chapter 14. And Paul's nearly stoned at Lystra as he's going back to these same places where the churches have now been planted. He's going back and encouraging the saints that are there and, and helping them to establish uh, uh, elderships in these places and, and just uh, encouraging the church. And then you get down to the, uh, the latter part of chapter 14, verse 24. It says, Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, 
they went down to Adaliah, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. <clears throat> when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So they're on the move, right? Verse chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. This is what they were teaching. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Big, big problem. We identify these peoples as Judaizers. They were those who imposed upon the gospel uh, submission to and, and obedience to circumcision and the ceremonial law of Moses. And this was taking place immediately after Paul had proclaimed the one true gospel to them. And what was so astonishing to Paul, as he tells us in, uh, in Galatians, was that it happened so rapidly. Now, this should be an, an eye-opener to all of us. <clears throat> all of us. Why? Because just because you've explained well a doctrine to a person, it should not surprise us if someone else comes along and challenges that doctrine and people buy into it. Now, there's a couple of reasons that can happen, and I don't want to speculate too much, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Suffice it to say this that this was taking place, all this was taking place just before the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, which identifies the problem at its heart. There is a, there's a big, uh, I, I, would, I would guess that the Jerusalem Council was probably a very heated meeting, that there were temp uh, uh, tempers raging, anger very present and real, words being said, and a, a battle for truth being fought. Uh, and, and the reason I say that without hesitation is because where we began. When we're talking about the, the, the purity and the clarity and the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is not something that we just simply will just, uh, uh, just sit back and, and, and act all calm, cool, and collected as if it really doesn't matter. No, it does matter. And the reason it matters so much and the reason it was worth them fighting over was because the difference was between life and death. The difference was between heaven and hell. The difference was the battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Between truth and lies. And I don't know about you, but I am determined in the year 2024 not to roll over and play dead with people that are telling our children and everybody else for that matter lies. And so this is a relevant battle, not only for them, but it's a relevant battle for us. The Apostle Paul is likely writing this letter just prior to that council and, uh, or, or maybe slightly after. Either way, it's at this time. It's at this time. And what's going on? What's happening? What are the events taking place? Well, the gospel is undoubtedly spreading, right? They're going from place to place. They're preaching the gospel. People are being saved. The church is growing. And with the growth of church comes persecution. Paul and Barnabas, they were no strangers to being persecuted. Paul specifically, uh, being, being left for dead, beaten. 
And, and the devil was squirming. The devil was squirming because the Gospel was doing what the Gospel does. But at the same time, false teachers were infiltrating. And the Judaizers specifically were among those who were false teachers who were coming in and they were demanding that Christians, in order to truly be saved, must obey circumcision and the ceremonial law of Moses. Why? Why were they so adamant about those things? Well, I would say with, with certainty, the reason that Judaizers were pre preaching a gospel that was faith plus works was because they did not believe in the righteousness of Christ being imputed to those who trust and believe in Him. In other words, at the heart of, of, uh, of man's problem with justification, that is salvation by faith alone, that there's nothing you do in order to merit salvation. There's no good work. There's no action uh, religiously that you can do in order to save yourself or add to your salvation. But any righteousness that a Christian has doesn't come from what they do, but it comes from their trust in Christ who accomplished righteousness on their behalf. That was at the heart of that message. It is a works-based salvation and it is a, a man-centered righteousness. And, and you say, wow, how could it be that simple? And how could it cause such that, you know, how could they be led away that easily? Well, th the reason is because all of us are wired because of our sinful nature to want to do something in order to impress God. God will look what I did. God, I'm not as bad as they are. I'm not like those dog Gentiles. I'm circumcised and I keep the law and I believe in Jesus. No. Their righteousness was, as Isaiah put it, filthy rags. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Actually, I'll go a step further. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. And so the gospel that was being proclaimed here was a faith plus. And you don't even have to say works. You can just say faith plus. Faith plus anything else does not ever equal salvation. It's faith in Christ, period. Trust in His perfect, finished work. Not only, not only to save us from the penalty of our sins, but also to give us a righteousness that's not our own. That's the gospel. That Jesus lived for us and accomplishes the righteousness that we have not and gives it to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in His work alone. That, that is the gospel. And so there's always and forever a drift of doctrinal purity and clarity. In verses 6 through 7, as we've already read, he says he was astonished that they so quickly went away from it. And if we were to lay our finger on one verse in the whole book of Galatians and say, what is the overarching theme of this message? The overarching theme of this letter. And in one statement, Paul, tell us, Tell us what it is you want us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. We look in chapter 2, and for context, we're going to read verses 15 and 16. But the thesis of the book of Galatians is verse 16 of chapter 2. Verse 15 says, For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, so he says, in spite of that, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ 
so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, say it with me, no one will be justified. Wow. Can, can we get it any clearer than that? Now, this was no, by no means a drift away from the one true gospel and a good and it is not was not a good thing. However, however, this is kind of the kicker. This is a uh, an aside. There is an element in which we recognize that a false gospel actually brings about a degree of clarity. Okay, so when we encounter false gospels, it's actually an indicator for you and I that we need to one stay away. Number two, we need to attack the false gospel. And Paul makes an incredible point to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 18 and 19. Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, now the church at Corinth was full of issues, and one of their issues was over the Lord's Supper and and their use uh, use and abuse of spiritual gifts, But he says this, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And he says, I believe it in part. Verse 19 says, for there must be factions, or or another word for that would be schisms. There must be factions or schisms among you. Why? In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In other words, Paul said, don't don't count it as a completely bad thing that there's divisions among you, these schisms or factions. He says they're actually to your benefit. And the reason is they help you to identify who's actually a genuine believer and who's not. And, and, and so I want to I make two qualifications on that. Number one is this. Followers of a false gospel may simply be confused or ignorant to sound doctrine. Okay. I want to make that as a qualifying statement. There are times when somebody is genuinely born again, and for a time and a season they are led astray by false teaching and and ignorant to sound doctrine. That's real, okay? But that is indeed the exception. More likely, followers of a false gospel are just simply following the lies of Satan, being deceived and deceiving others. And this was a regular subject of Christ's own teaching. He says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. He says, Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Another example would be the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? He tells us that there, in, in the assembly of God's people, there are wheat and there are tares. There are genuine born-again believers, and there are those who identify as such, but in reality, they're not the real thing. They're not the real thing. And we have to be careful. He literally says in that parable, uh, the, the question is, should we go and pull the tares out? He says, no. It's not your job to pull the tares out. That's why we have a process of church discipline which begins with the identification of sin, the confrontation of that sin, and then multiple witnesses and going back and forth and trying to bring a person to repentance in order that in order that they're restored to a right fellowship. And if we do that process 
accurately and faithfully, most of the time, I would hope that it would bring about the genuine distinction between a true and a false believer. Paul dealt with it in, in 1 Corinthians 5. There was a man in the church who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and he said, listen, you guys have, you, 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 you've become arrogant to this, and you think you're, you're prideful that you tolerate this sin. And he says, you've you got to kick that person out of the church because the little bit of leaven, and that, that's, a, that's a, an object that is used both ways for good and for evil. He said that little bit of leaven will leaven the whole lump. In other words, if you don't identify and, de and deal with the sin among those people, it's going to spread. And so the, the idea here is never, it's never to just try to, you know, get somebody to run off or to kick them out of a church. It's never for that. It's for their good so that they would truly come to a, a genuine faith and repentance or, or that they would genuinely be exposed as a false teacher. So this is what Paul was up against. This is what the church was dealing with in uh, the late 40s AD. Think about the time frame, right? We're talking 15 to 20 years after Christ has has ascended to heaven and it's it happens so so fast young people and should the lord tarry you guys are going to have to fight the battle for truth just the same as we are today i hope you understand that that you can we, we can never piggyback off of another generation that things are not just simply going to fall into place Every single one of us needs to study God's word, learn God's truth, and apply it to ourselves, and then fight tooth and nail to preserve that. Because there is always and forever going to be an enemy against you and against the truth of God's word that seeks to destroy what God has said. Satan's tactics for attacking uh, the truth of God's word have not changed at all. It was always a battle over what did God say. Words matter. Definitions of words matter. In the gospel itself, there's only one. There's only one. And it matters. It matters that you live for it. It matters that you fight for it. And it matters that so much that you would even be willing to die for it. God help us. God help us to be soldiers of the truth. So now, in conclusion this morning, uh, just want to give you a general flow or outline of this letter. Um, in verses 1 through 5 of our first chapter, we have Paul's opening greeting, and then he gives a very short gospel encouragement. Very short, but it's there. Verses 6 through 9 of chapter 1, he identifies and points out the distortion of the gospel itself. And then in chapter 1, verses 11 through chapter 2, verse 10, Paul has to defend his apostolic authority and authenticity. In other words, there were people who were, who were challenging Paul as a man and the authority that he carried. And by the way, that battle is still going on today. There is seemingly a never-ending stream of attacks on the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of Scripture written by Paul. We have one uh, current-day theologian by the name of N.T. Wright who, who has really pushed a, a new perspective on Paul. Can I give you a word of advice? If you read N.T. Wright on the new perspective of Paul, stamp on his name, N.T. Wrong. Amen? Okay, we got to keep going. <laughs> Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we see uh, Paul identifies his disagreement with Peter. 
Uh, brothers can disagree and still love each other. Amen. Sometimes it's necessary. Paul thought it was. Chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. The declaration of the foundational doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone. Can't wait to get to that chapter. Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Paul is going to defend the doctrine of justification by faith alone historically. Okay, In other words, it's not a New Testament doctrine. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is a Bible doctrine from beginning to end. In chapter, chapter 3, verses 15 to chapter 4, verse 7, and then again in chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, equally excited about this, Paul is going to defend the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and he's going to explain it covenantally. Covenantally. And then chapter 4, verses 8 through 20, there is a, uh, Paul gives some dangers that are associated with misunderstanding this doctrine. In chapter 5, look at the balance of all this. Chapter 5, the doctrine is applied. Okay, We have, we have all doctrine, theology, chapters 1 through 4, and you get to application, chapter 5. And then chapter 6, in general, Paul leaves the church letter with uh, just a general encouragement in the truth as he has now applied, he has taught and applied this doctrine. He encourages them in their battle for the truth and, and encourages their, their fruitfulness in the gospel itself. And just in general, there's more than this, but three, three main features of the book of, of Galatians, key doctrines that we're going we're gonna to emphasize when we get to those places. We've already done the first uh, a lot today, and, and we're going to do a lot more of it. The doctrine of justification and then we're also going to look at sanctification. That's going to be seen there in verse or chapter 5 specifically in the application. And then there's also sprinkled through the book of Galatians uh, eschatological implications, that is, study of the end times. So there is indeed a, an eschatological aspect to the book of Galatians. We don't usually think of it that way, but it is indeed there. So praise God for the book of Galatians. Are you excited as I am? Yeah. All right. So can I ask you to do some homework for me? It takes about 15 minutes for the average reader to read through the book of Galatians. Sometime between now and next week, I want you to read the whole book of Galatians in one sitting. You're my son. You just went, oh. One sitting, the whole book of Galatians. And then next Saturday night, as you're preparing for worship Sunday morning, I want you to read chapter one, maybe a couple times if you're feeling ambitious. We're going we're gonna to plan ourselves in chapter one. And I think if you do that, when you come next week, you will be prepared to receive the word. And I believe it will make a huge impact on God's work in your heart and all of ours together. Amen? All right, let's pray. As we are going to, again, have communion this morning. And so as I close us in prayer this morning, um, I would just want to call our attention quickly to, again, 1 Corinthians. I know this may seem repetitive, 